Good evening, and uh, welcome to Buckner Hall and Alumni House. Uh, we're delighted by the turnout this evening, which is, uh, needless to say, bigger than we expected, and uh, glad you're all here. Uh, we're very pleased, you know, we're very proud of our Henry and Alberta Burke, uh, Jane Austen Scholar in Residence program. I think most of you know that Goucher College is fortunate to have uh, one of the best collections of Jane Austen materials, certainly in North America and uh, perhaps in the world. Uh, and we're very proud of it and very pleased to be able to take advantage of it and bring people here uh, to do research and, and work on it. Uh, in 1975, Goucher received this collection that uh, Alberta Burke, class of 1928 at Goucher, and her husband Henry Burke, had acquired over a period of 40 years, and they uh, uh, left it to Goucher. It consists of first editions, rare period publications related to the life and landscape of rural England, Alberta Burke's own notebooks of Austin-related memorabilia and correspondence with other Austin collectors and scholars. And uh, in celebration of the 25th anniversary of the collection coming to Goucher, we established the Jane Austen Scholar-in-Residence program in the year 2000. So uh, tonight, we're delighted to have Jillian Dow, as uh, she's here this week, as this year's Austin Scholar. And uh, she will be exploring the topic of translating Austin, or when Jane goes abroad, examining the effect of quintessential Englishness on the translation of Jane Austen's work into other languages and cultures. Uh, Jillian is pr Associate Professor of English at the University of Southampton uh, and has long held research interest in these issues. She's also the research director at the Chawton House Library, the uh, Center for Early English Women Writers uh, in uh, Southern England, which has a, a unique collection of books focusing on women's writing from between the years 1600 and 1830, and it's set in the home and working estate of Jane Austen's brother. Uh, I had the good fortune to be there for a conference a few years ago organized by Jillian, and it really is a wonderful place, and it's just so nice in this world so fraught with so many problems to know that there's a place like Chawton House where people are pursuing serious and... Uh, wonderful research interest in an atmosphere where it's encouraged and it's, there, it's uh, comfortable and, and beautiful. Uh, Nancy Magnuson, our college librarian, who uh, has been here for 25 years. We're very proud of that. <laughs> Nancy Magnuson and... and <laughs> almost okay. Well, we'll check that exact date. Um, I, you know, I'm prone to exaggerate. It's, it might be only 24 and a half years. <laughs> okay. Um, and Tara, Nancy and Tara Olivero are archivist and special collections librarian. Where's Tara? Well, she's in the hall someplace helping more people get in. I, there she is. Um, they did a wonderful job uh, pulling all of this together. Uh, Jillian will speak, and then uh, she'll take questions from the audience. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jillian Dow. This year's Henry and Alberta Burke, Class of 28, Jane Austen Scholar-in-Residence. Thank you. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I want to thank everyone here at Goucher College for making me so very welcome. Um, Heathrow Airport 
airport had a series of catastrophes on Sunday. So I was supposed to arrive Sunday evening. I actually just arrived yesterday evening. Um, I hope I'm not going to be too jet-lagged and that you'll bear with me if I am. I'm going to be speaking today then um, about what happens when Jane Austen goes abroad. So, orgueil et préjugé et zombies, orgueil et préjugé et zombies, not to mention common to Henkin to zombie, that publishers have been prepared to market Seth Graham Smith's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies in translation across the globe (laughs) speaks volumes about the current brand recognition of Jane Austen's best-loved novel. In 2012, just one year before the bicentenary of publication, Pride and Prejudice is uncontested as one of the best examples of English literature. Indeed, from Argentina to Spain and from Germany to Japan, Austen's novels are now recognised as classics in world literature, main players of a global canon. The path to global literary celebrity has, however, not been a straightforward one. Indeed, T.E. Kebble, writing in 1885, voiced the concerns of many readers of Jane Austen. Miss Austen, he said, could hardly be appreciated by anyone not thoroughly English. (laughs) Well, despite the fact that I am Scottish and that I'm addressing an audience of, I assume, predominantly American lovers of Jane Austen, we shall press on regardless. (laughs) In this um, lecture, what I want to do is to introduce you to some of what I like to call informally the misuses of Jane by introducing you to just some of the early translators, publishing houses and editors who have created this global Jane Austen. But before travelling abroad, I want to return to the small village that Jane Austen spent her final years in and which T.E. Kebble had just been visiting when he wrote this article, Jane Austen at Home. And of course, I have the pleasure and privilege of working there myself. The village is Chawton, and it's in the southern English county of Hampshire. In a small room at the Jane Austen House Museum in Chawton, there's a growing collection of secondary material on Austen's life and work. It's housed in a small reading room. The books in this reading room have largely been acquired through donation. And within this collection, there's a section of shelving devoted to translations of Austen's novels, approximately 70 volumes in this part of the collection, announce Jane Austen's textual presence in Iran, in China, in Japan, and closer to home in most European countries. It's not a comprehensive collection of translations. Rather, the translations in the Jane Austen House Museum document acts of homage. Books first sent out from Chawton into the wider world are now returning from their global destinations, sent by foreign readers and translators to Jane Austen's own home. Indeed, the notes um, included in these donations of translations sometimes couch the offerings in terms of gifts to Jane Austen herself or occasionally to her characters. There's a letter um, dated September 1990 from Jane Knight Paula, She's based in the Netherlands, and it accompanies a donation of a translation of Mansfield Park into modern Hebrew. (laughs) Deeply religious as they were, writes the donor, it would no doubt have added to the happiness of Edmund and Fanny to know that one day their conversations would be in Hebrew. 
the language of the Old Testament, the language in which Jesus himself preached in Galilee. In all probability, Jane Austen herself would have been pleased too. A 1999 letter from two Chinese visitors accompanies a Mandarin translation of Pride and Prejudice and concludes that the essence or spirits of Jane Austen has been shown to the Chinese people by this book or other books of different translation published years ago. Please accept this book and tell visitors that in China which has an ancient civilization, people love Jane Austen. And on the 19th of September 2001, a letter from a Japanese scholar and translator, professor of English literature in Tokyo, accompanies three donations, a critical appreciation of Austen, plus translations of Mansfield Park and Persuasion. This translator says he would be happy if colleagues at the museum could put the translations into one of the bookcases at the Jane Austen house. He says, I feel as if I were sending these books to Austen herself. Similarly, in Chawton House Library, the house belonging to Jane Austen's brother, Edward Knight, now devoted to a unique collection of um, English women's writing, gifts of translation continue to appear. One of the most recent from a Serbian colleague at the University of Belgrade is a translation of Pride and Prejudice inscribed with grateful thanks, bringing Jane Austen back home from Serbia. So these selected extracts from correspondence to the Jane Austen House Museum and to Chawton House Library provide evidence of a global following for Jane Austen's novels and of recognition that translators mediate her work for readers unable to access the original text. Translations, however, do not always deal with Jane Austen or interpret her novels in predictable ways. In Anglo-American academic publishing, recent books on Jane Austen seldom fail to mention her ubiquity. Guides and companions include chapters on cults, cultures and subcultures, sequels and prequels, and it's a rare scholarly book that does not address Austen and global culture, at least in passing, as a convenient shorthand to hint at her legacy and reach. Three very important books I'm sure many of you know. The title of Catherine Sutherland's fine study, Jane Austen's Textual Lives, suggests a broadening appeal for Austen's text. She she goes to Bollywood. And other publications have followed Sutherland's lead. Claire Harmon's 2009 biography claims that Jane Austen has conquered the world. And the publisher website for Rachel Brownstein's Why Jane Austen promises an exploration of contemporary Janeomania. Austen-inspired weblogs um, with variations of the tagline She's Everywhere are themselves omnipresent. Yet the emphasis for much of this work tends to be on Austen's Anglophone readers and editors in countries where English is an official language, primarily, actually, Great Britain and North America, and where film and television adaptations, not to mention um, sequels, prequels, mashups and guides to dating, have numerous fans. In other countries, Jane Austen is of necessity constructed by her translators and by the packaging of such translators by foreign editors and publishers. The environments in which she's taught, read, or indeed viewed on screen inevitably condition reception of Austen in countries where a reading knowledge of English cannot be taken for granted. In many of these countries, familiarity with Austen's novels and characters is not universal. She's not everywhere, in other words. Or, put another way, she might be everywhere, but who is she? 
I'm arguing in this lecture and in, in my current work on translations of Austen's novels that thinking about translation complicates easy assumption about global access to Austen's novels. And I'm going to investigate just some of the uses of translation in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. My exploration of the global Jane Austen and some of her readers emphasizes the French Jane Austen, for France is the country that's seen the most sustained engagement with Austen's novels, all of which were translated into French by 1824, so very early. Remember, Jane Austen died in 1817. The points I raise, however, have wider implications for a study of Austen abroad. Thanks to the research of many Austen scholars in recent decades, the story of her comparative neglect in the Britain of the 19th century is now a familiar one. The transition to an author with broad appeal in Anglo-American circles moves through polite interest within Austen's own lifetime to the early control of the author's literary reputation by her brother's descendants to increasing and discerning enthusiasm through the early and mid-20th century to a veritable explosion of interest in popular culture from the mid-1990s onwards. That was the moment, of course, of the appearance of popular television series such as Andrew Davis's Pride and Prejudice and the Emma Thompson film of Sense and Sensibility. In some ways... Austen's global presence through translation can be mapped on to this narrative of increasing popularity and exposure. So in the 19th century, there were French translations of all six of Austen's novels, German translations of Persuasion and Pride and Prejudice, Swedish translations of Persuasion and Emma, Danish translation of Sense and Sensibility. And that was it. If Austen's British compatriots were somewhat slow to appreciate her talents, this was much more the case on the continent. Um, European languages such as Spanish and Italian translated selected novels in the 1920s and 30s, but it wasn't until the 1980s, 90s and early 2000s that all of Austen's six novels were translated into mainstream European languages, and minority languages then started to translate her work. Anthony Mandel um, situates the exponential growth in translation and criticism in continental Europe as due in large part to the phenomenal success of film and television adaptations of the 1990s. And I can point you towards his excellent uh, collection of essays here, edited with Brian Southam and entitled The Reception of Jane Austen in Europe for full bibliographic information about some of these translations. Certainly there is concrete evidence of increased European translation, um, Pride and Prejudice into Catalan in 1985, Basque in 1996, Lithuanian in 1997, Latvian in 2000 and Galician in 2005. In Japan, the picture is very similar. Polite interest in translating Austen in the early 20th century has now led to a real translating industry. In the last 10 years, Japanese translators have retranslated all of Jane Austen's major novels, unfinished works, juvenilia, and they've also set work to translating related texts like sequels, Emma Tennant's sequels, very big in Japan. Um, the global media coverage of the sale of the manuscript of Jane Austen's unfinished novel, The Watsons, in July 2011, shows that anything connected with the Austen brand more generally makes the news. 
Nevertheless, despite the numerous edited collections, articles and monographs devoted to Jane Austen's novels, her readers and her reception, relatively few scholars have considered the foreign or translated Austen comprehensively or in any debt. The small number of examinations of translations of Austen fiction see travesties and betrayal at every turn. Jane Austen does not travel well, but she travels much, is Andrew Wright's opening gambit in a 1975 essay entitled Jane Austen and Abroad, and the remainder of the piece is spent proving the point. He contents himself with documenting numerous distortions of Austen's stylistic intent, observing crude and startling renderings, careless and imprecise passages, and stilted prose that, even when technically accurate, seem to most scholars of English literature to dull Jane Austen's irony and stifle her unique voice. That Jane Austen does not travel well stands as a truism in studies of translations of her novels. Indeed, Austen's style is seen to be beyond emulation by many contemporary specialists in literary translation who engage with comparative readings of her novels and their translations into other languages. Many translators themselves are acutely aware of the challenges, even when these challenges apply to novels by her contemporaries. But there is this additional complicating layer of interpretive material for foreign readers and translators of Austen to navigate. As the comment by T.E. Kebble that we've already seen demonstrates, her presumed inability to travel into other languages is felt to be due to her inherent Englishness and seems, moreover, to be linked to biographical certainties about Austen herself. The portrait of the quiet, Hampshire-loving spinster who never left the southern counties of England in her life or in her fiction has had a lasting legacy. The result is the assumption that if Jane Austen didn't travel, if she's at home in Chawton or Steventon or less frequently in Bath or even Southampton, she cannot possibly be at home in Madrid or Tokyo or Alexandria. Now, organisers of the Jane Austen Society of North America have... um, conferences in recent years have emphasized this incongruity of setting in recent years. So the 2006 um, AGM hosted in Tucson, Arizona, placed the profile sketch of Jane Austen next to a cactus to advertise their exploration of Mansfield Park. Um, 2008, Chicago, Illinois, drawing attention to their theme of Austen's legacy by using a stylized sketch of Chicago's most famous skyscrapers as their logo. And the meeting to be held this year um, in Brooklyn places Austen right at the center of the Big Apple. Now, we might argue, of course, that it's just as easy to read Jane Austen beside a cactus or in a skyscraper as under an English oak tree. Yet the spatial and temporal anachronisms suggested by these playful product placements seem both to emphasise Austen's own little bit, two inches wide of ivory, and to ask what Austen could know of cacti or cacti of Austen. (laughs) The point, then, that since Austen does not travel well, one must visit her in her native land, is reinforced through this kind of visual irony. An approach to the study of any author that requires a visit to the settings of her novels for a true understanding of them has far-reaching implications for translations of the text. 
Is it possible to translate Austen's characters from their spatial and temporal locations in late 18th century England? Should we even try? Here, the 21st century scholar of Austen holds a very different view to her 19th century predecessors. And this is where I need to give a very brief introduction to some translation theory. So what's the purpose of a translation? Translation theorists now tend to view the purpose of a translation as to provide a guide to the original, which I mean an accurate sense of the foreignness of the source text. The foreignizing translation ethics of the scholar Lawrence Venuti insists on a model of translation that preserves the strangeness of the source language. To adopt any other model, Venuti argues, is to commit ethnocentric violence. Now, this kind of translation that modern translation theorists strive for would keep Austen foreign, that is to say, English, when she's translated into foreign tongues. Now, the 19th century felt quite differently about such matters. The first translation, translators of Austen's novels in the 19th century adopted the domesticating model of translation, in which the source text is made to fit the expectations of the reader in the target language. Now, through this translation model, Jane Austen's characters become less English and more like characters who would be known to readers in the literatures of their own countries. The best-known expression of this practice for the Anglo-American reader is Dryden's famous assertion in his dedication of the Aeneas that he has endeavoured to make Virgil speak such English as he would himself have spoken if he'd been born in England and in this present age. So the first translation of Pride and Prejudice was published in abridged and serial form in French in 1813, so this very same year as the publication of the original, in four successive issues of the Genevan periodical, the Bibliothèque Britannique. Now, this periodical was published between 1795 and 1815, and it had really an enormous influence on the reading habits of continental Europe. It was tremendously popular. Indeed, the publication of Pride and Prejudice in this compilation of Anglophile accounts of popular science from across the channel explains much about the translator's and editor's choice of how to translate Austen's novels. The extracts from Pride and Prejudice selected by the Bibliothèque Britannique were carefully chosen to make Austen as Swiss an author as possible. (laughs) trying to make the plot and narrative style fit the conventions of the sentimental Franco-Swiss prose fiction popular in the period. Now, there was a much more famous um, author than Jane Austen within her own lifetime, Jamaine de Stal. Some of you might know her 1809 novel, Corinne. Here she is dressed as her most famous character. Now, her response to her reading um, of Pride and Prejudice in English... It was recommended to her by her friend Sir James Mackintosh while she was staying in London in in 1813. And she responded in a, a very untypically laconic way with just one word. Vulgaire, she said. It's easily translated. She thinks Jane Austen is vulgar. 
Now, on the surface, this might seem a very surprising response to Austen's genteel comedy of manners, and yet an explanation can be found by examining the literary marketplace on the continent. Franco-Swiss novels, including Stahl's own, were peopled with aristocratic heroes and heroines. They simply couldn't have included frank discussions of money and the marriage market, which Jane Austen's novels, of course, do, as we all know. Such references, then, are omitted entirely from the first French translation of Pride and Prejudice. They're simply cut out. Elizabeth Bennet, who was actually an original heroine even for the British fiction of her age, simply had no equivalent in continental fiction in 1813. The response of the first Genevan translators to Elizabeth Bennet was therefore to make her more orthodox and respectable. She speaks less. Elizabeth Bennet, in the first French translation, says less. And she says what she does say in a much less forthright manner. But in some ways, Austen's characters are made more English in this text, or rather they become little more than caricatures of Englishness. Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy already fitted neatly in a lineup of English heroes of Franco-Swiss invention. Um, Bomston in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Julie ou la Nouvelle-Héloise was one. Oswald in Germaine de Stahl's own Corinne was another. Um, but Mr. Darcy is very anglicised in the Bibliothèque Britannique. Let's have a, look, have a look at one very famous passage from the novel. This is where Elizabeth and Darcy meet at Pemberley. As they walked across the hall towards the river, Elizabeth turned back to look again. Her her uncle and aunt stopped also, and while the former was conjecturing as to the date of the building, the owner of it himself suddenly came forward from the road which led behind it to the stables. They were within 20 yards of each other, and so abrupt was his appearance that it was impossible to avoid his sight. Their eyes instantly met, and the cheeks of both were overspread with the deepest blush. Now, we'll notice here, as is so often the case in Austen's novels, the narrator carefully avoids any reference to the character's dress. We don't know what they look like. In the translation of this scene, the Swiss translators add in some details of Darcy's appearance. He is wearing but, and he has a fouet à la main. He's wearing boots, leather boots, and he has a whip in his hand. Just add this in. It's a stereotypical representation of the British sports-loving hero viewed through Genevan eyes. And perhaps when we think about this very early translation, the artistic license taken by Andrew Davis and the 1995 BBC production of Pride and Prejudice for Darcy's appearance in the equivalent scene in the television series seems less shocking when we consider it has its roots in the early 19th century. There we are. And there is Darcy... <laughs> there is Darcy with his, with his whip, carrying his whip. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a still where it shows him with leather boots on, but he is wearing leather boots. So we have, we have the, the, the screen adaptation doing something very similar to the early um, Swiss translation. Indeed, the Englishness and leather boots go hand in hand has had a lasting legacy in French translations of English texts. Um, Just as an aside, The Avengers, the popular television series, um, is chapeau moulin et bottes de cuir, bowler hat and leather boots in French translation. (laughs) 
And translations through the ages take enormous liberties with titles as well as with content. We see this most clearly in the first novel-length translation of one of Austen's novels into another language. Isabelle de Montaulieu, the Franco-Swiss translator of Sense and Sensibility, Raison et Sensibilité, ou les deux manières d'aimer, Sense and Sensibility are the two ways of loving, and Persuasion, which she translates as La Famille Elliot, the Elliot family, makes Austen speak such French as she would have spoken had she been born in Geneva in the early 19th century. Now, when she published Raison et Sensibilité, ou les deux manières d'aimer, in 1815, Isabelle de Montaulieu was a far greater literary celebrity than Jane Austen herself, and indeed she was to remain so for the whole of the 19th century. Her literary reputation at that time rested on the publication of um, one novel, Caroline de Lichfield, came out in 1786, and it's a version of The Beauty and the Beast fairy tale. Caroline de Lichfield was a huge success across Europe from the moment of publication, and the reception was very enthusiastic in Britain. Uh, Jane Austen read it and admired it greatly. Now, what what Isabelle de Montaulieu does in her translation of Sense and Sensibility is she compares the two heroines and their respective characteristics, sense for um, Eleanor, sensibility for her younger sister Marianne, and she makes a lot of this comparison. One could almost say that for her, the title of the novel should have been Sense versus Sensibility. Throughout the translation, Montaulieu adds to Jane Austen's authorial voice, which is already much more present in Sense and Sensibility than in Austen's later novels, such as Emma. And she creates the the effect of a roman à thèse, so that is a novel uh, with a moral message. The translator continually compares the two sisters. She turns the characteristics into caricatures and she changes the characterization. For as many critics, of course, have pointed out, and as you all know, Eleanor has a great deal of sensibility and Marianne is not without sense. Montaulieu's simplification of the nuances of Austen's characterization leads to much flatter characters. Let me give you an example of how these kind of changes function by looking at Mrs. Jennings' accounts of Marianne's sufferings. Now, you'll see just by... You don't need to be able to read French, don't worry. Um, But you'll see simply by the space on the page here that Isabelle de Montaulieu's French takes up more room. This is the same passage, but she's making it much longer. Um, We note, too, that one thing isn't translated. Here, I've underlined it. Um, Austen's Mrs. Jennings says of her own daughters, they used to be foolish enough during their own courtships. But the French Mrs. Jennings makes no reference to foolish girls. In fact, she exaggerates Marianne's sufferings. The text I've underlined in the right-hand slide shows Mrs. Jennings saying that Marianne is dying of love and that she's likely to be driven mad. She exclaims that the young girl is dreamy, melancholic, has a beaten air. None of these phrases appear in the original English, and all of them serve to exaggerate Marianne's sensibility. Now, Isabelle de Montaulieu does something else that's worth commenting on in her translation. You can see it from this extract. She changes Marianne's name. She changes Marianne's name to Mariah, Now, no amount of research will ever give me the definitive answer as to why she chose to do this, but I can hazard a guess. 
I suspect it's because the name Marianne had peculiarly French and revolutionary connotations by 1815, and the Franco-Swiss audience that Montelieu was targeting wanted to read an apolitical romance. The name Marianne was synonymous with revolutionary excess from the 1790s onwards, and the bare-breasted warrior woman, symbol of the revolution and of the republic, was surely something that Isabelle de Montelieu wanted to avoid. It's possible, too, that Montelieu was thinking of Jane Austen's more famous contemporary, Mariah Edgeworth, and simply felt that an English heroine needed a proper English name. Changes of this nature are the translator's prerogative in the period, and although we see them as travesties, the original readers would not have done so. But in her ending to Raison et Sentiment, Montelieu is not guilty of bad or surprising translation, but rather an entire reworking of the text and one that I'm sure would have astonished Jane Austen herself as much as it does 21st century readers. Let me give you a couple of details and some illustrated examples. Montelieu wrote of her revised ending to Raison et Sentiment. J'ai traduit avec assez de fidélité. I translated more or less faithfully, she says, until the end, when I permitted myself, as is my usual practice, several small changes, which I thought necessary. Now, what were these légère changements? Well, they're not very légère at all, actually. They're quite significant. The jilted second Eliza, she's renamed Emma in Montelieu's version, presumably once again because this is considered to be a more English name, moves into Mrs. Smith's estate with her illegitimate son. And one morning, while strolling through the woods, the Dashwoods come upon a family tableau that would have startled Jane Austen quite as much as it does Eleanor and Mariah. That is the spectacle of this uh, Emma playing with a child who's a spitting image of Willoughby. Remember, this is a product of their, um, their liaison. And this scene immediately induces a fit of the vapours in Mariah. She throws herself into a swoon. Here she is swooning. Um, an engraving designed to accompany Montelieu's translation and as such the first illustration of Sense and Sensibility it illustrates an entirely new scene Jane Austen never wrote it Um, in in Montelieu's version Willoughby's wife dies leaving him free to propose to Mariah, Marianne which he does He does it indirectly through an elegant letter to Eleanor in which he confesses that he'd always loved her sister And Mariah rejects the proposal in the following manner. Again, an entirely new scene. This does not happen in Jane Austen's original. You've got the original French on the left-hand side, but I'm going to read my literal translation so that you have an idea of exactly what kind of character Isabelle de Montelieu makes Mariah, and Colonel Brandon for that matter. Will you reply to Mr. Willoughby, said Mariah to her sister after a moment of silence. Yes, doubtless. But what must I say to him? That he is quite mistaken and that I am no longer free if, she turned to face the colonel, if the best of men sees fit to accept this hand and the gift of my heart and if he refuses them, God will have my refuse, cried the colonel, transported with joy, squeezing against his breast and pressing his lips to the adored hand. Oh, Mariah, dear Mariah, did I hear correctly? And at what a moment? But is it not an error of your generous heart? No, no, said she, with the grace of an enchantress. It is cured of all errors. It belongs only to he who has, who, who has truly loved me and who will love you all his life. 
It wants only the total reform of Willoughby to complete the sentimentalised happy ending, and this occurs. Willoughby marries the second Eliza, or rather Emma, legitimises that son, and redeems himself in the eyes of Mrs Smith. Let's just say that for those of us who admire the original novel, this is a somewhat surprising conclusion. (laughs) I'm insisting on the importance of Isabelle de Montelieu's translations of Sense and Sensibility and Persuasion for two reasons. The first, because both give us excellent examples of the domesticating model of translation, a translation that takes the novel and does something entirely different with it. Isabelle de Montagnu designs her translation specifically to appeal to her Franco-Swiss readers, more used to sentimentalised heroines than the realist heroines that Austen and her British contemporaries were creating in the opening decades of the 19th century. And the second reason is that they were better known in Europe than Austen's original. Isabelle de Montagnu was popular from Romania to Russian. Many 19th century European readers of what they thought was Jane Austen were not reading Jane Austen at all. They were reading Isabelle de Montelieu's version of Jane Austen. Now, we must be careful um, of staking claims for the exceptional nature of early translations of Austen when we draw attention to their inaccuracies. The simple fact is that most of Austen's contemporaries and predecessors suffered the same um, fate on the continent as did their continental counterparts in Britain. Very little foreign fiction travelled well in the long 18th century. If by travelling well, we mean travelling accurately. Now, this brings us to a very important point about dominant language and cultures in different historical periods and a related point about hegemonic English language nations. For in the time that Austen's novels have been translated into other languages, there has been a significant sea change. When her novels were first published, French was the dominant language and culture within Europe. In the 21st century, the global dominance of English is virtually uncontested. The impact on translation is striking. There's a wonderful read, wonderfully readable recent guide to translation by Princeton scholar David Bellos. He looks at the global literary marketplace in 2010 and makes a very basic point. Translations from English are all over the place. Translation into English are as rare as hen's teeth, he says. And the reception of Jane Austen's novels must be read in this context in foreign marketplaces where Ian Rankin sells alongside Michel Welbeck in a context, that is, where the English novel dominates. Now, the domination of the English novel um, has been of enormous interest to 20th century bibliophiles and one notable use of translation has been for the Austen collector. In November 16, 1953, Goucher's very own Alberta Burke, self-professed Jainite and collector of the wonderful collection of Austen-related memorabilia that I'm looking at here in the college, wrote to the great R.W. Chapman on the publication of his Jane Austen, a critical biography, which had appeared earlier that same year. It's with a feeling of real humility, she tells the Oxford scholar, that I would like to call your attention to a few points which you have not included in your book. Alberta Burke goes on to list several additional translations which Chapman has neglected to include in his bibliography. And um, 
she goes on to, to, to mention all these translations in some detail. I've given you them here, but actually it's digitized. You can find all of this online as well as in the collection here at Goucher. So as far back as the 1940s then, when professional Austin scholars such as the great Chapman seemed to have been neglecting the topic, Alberta Burke was interested in collecting translations for what they told her about the popularity and reception of her favorite novelist. Indeed, she seems to have, have viewed her translations as a specific kind of memorabilia in the days before Jane Austen finger puppets, fridge magnets, and plastic figurines. In 1961, she makes a gift of 10 duplicate translations from her collection to um, her fellow Janeite, Elizabeth Frost Reed. And Elizabeth Frost Reed replies, I've just unpacked the books, aware as I worked of how carefully, even lovingly, you'd prepared them for mailing me I fingered them lovely. Your nameplate in each book makes, them, makes me appreciate them even more. And translations here then are objects that serve the dual function of bringing the, the, the um, owners closer to Austin herself and of cementing a literary friendship. In a short article by Alberta Burke's husband entitled Seeking Jane in Foreign Tongues, published 10 years after his wife's death in 1985, Henry Burke explains the couple's first foray into the collection of translations in Austen's novels, prompted by a visit to Quebec in 1939 and the discovery of a number of French translations there. He then gets all of their friends involved in this collecting activity and he says, we wound up with a Russian Pride and Prejudice a Chinese Pride of Prejudice, three volumes in Japanese, and friends go to South America and buy Brazilian translations. They, they, they buy Portuguese translations. They bring them back here to Baltimore. And there's this wonderful encounter in Copenhagen when they track down, um, they track down the first Danish translation of Lady Susan. It's literary tourism of a very particular kind. Every trip abroad for the Burks is seen as an opportunity to collect foreign Austens. And he points out clearly that these were never books that the couple intended to read. He says we were unable to cope with the text. <laughs> demonstrating that for him and for his wife, they had quite another use. As book historians had taken pains to highlight in scholarship on the book as material object, much can be read about a novel before the pages are even opened, and indeed whether or not the, the book is read thereafter. This is even more the case for the foreign novel abroad, where even the fact that it is a translation can be highlighted or concealed. So the first edition of Montelieu's Raison et Sensibilité highlights that it's freely translated from the English and that Madame Isabelle de Montelieu undertook the translation, but Jane Austen appears nowhere on this page. And in subsequent editions of um, Austen in France, the titles and images chosen by publishers to advertise and illustrate the novel can lead to some transposition of setting, even though anglicization is clearly intended. 1932 edition of a French translation of Pride and Prejudice was sold under the title Les Cinq Filles de Madame Bennett, The Five Daughters of Mrs. Bennett, a title that echoed the translation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Woman, Les Quatre Filles de Dr. March, and was presumably intended to appeal to the same readers. 
confusions abound. Editions of Austen's novels um, produced by the French publishing house 1018 in the 1990s all use details of women from Dante Gabriel Rossetti's paintings on their book jackets. And this casting of Jane Austen's heroines as red-headed pre-Raphaelite beauties of the latter half of the 19th century with these independent gazes and twisted mouths align them more with the heroines of the Bronte sisters' novels, which are popular in France and have been for them from the moment of publication. And sometimes a very simple allusion to English culture is all that's required by French publishers. The front cover of the 2000 Gallimard edition of Lady Susan shows a photograph of a bone china teacup filled with milky tea, a safe and domestic English iconography that gives no hint that Austen's most wicked heroine will be found within its pages. And looking at the Burke collection um, of Spanish and Italian translations of Pride and Prejudice, as I was this afternoon, can give us a very confused and confusing picture of the novel, which stamps its Englishness on the book jacket whilst misreading the period in which Austen's novels were set. Were the characters straight out of a Gainsborough portrait? Did Mr. Darcy really wear a bowler hat? Is Elizabeth Bennet a belle epoque lover of large bonnets and high collars, or would she be more at home in the deep south? Might she even be a red-headed 50s housewife? Finally, the still from the 1940s film adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson reminds us that film and television adaptations have long provoked new translation. Indeed, where once translations of Austen displayed a remarkable and colourful it's very colourful, divergence, a global literary culture dominated by Anglo-Saxon models has to some extent flattened the layers of paratextual and linguistic interpretation of Austen's novels abroad. Where most European high streets have their Starbucks, their McDonald's and their subways, these same high streets carry versions of Pride and Prejudice which are packaged for the global marketplace in distressingly simmer, similar ways with Kira Knightley, used to sell translations of Pride and Prejudice from the Balkans to Finland and beyond. There's another problem, too, with translations of Austen's novels, which is that in many countries, variant translations exist. Many European languages have multiple translations of Pride and Prejudice in print and widely available. The French reader who walks into any of the most mainstream Paris bookstores, as I did in June 2011, is confronted with these five rival translations of Pride and Prejudice. All are entitled Orgueil and Préjugés, and on the surface, there doesn't seem much to choose between them. One might wish to um, warn the French reader away from this middle one here, the Ashipoche edition, which announces boldly on the back cover that Mrs. Bennett is a femme de pasteur, she's a parson's wife. What nonsense! Um, but further advice, however, must necessarily be subjective. How will the French reader choose between the Gallimard edition um, and the Flammarion edition, um, the 1810 edition, or the Motif edition? Should one simply rely on the most prestigious publishing house? Should one rely on how much one pays for it? These cost between 6 and 11 euros, so there's not much to choose between them there. Which translation, translator will best capture the mood and style of the novel? Are new translations necessarily better than old? And does any of this matter? 
Translations are continuously remade to interpret Austen for new generations of readers abroad. At the very least, they are repackaged for a foreign publisher with an eye on the market, a reissue of an earlier translation of Pride and Prejudice branded to appeal to the viewers of the 2005 film by Joe Wright and with introductory notes from a popular author in that country, Will Find Buyers. Although the resulting product may appear as a cynical marketing ploy, foreign readers' appetites for Austen's work seems unlimited and the market for translation is assured. In the case of the popularity of Austen's novels abroad, the trajectory is circuitous. Early translations, ones like the ones I was talking about earlier, have really left very little mark and they've long been forgotten. In the 21st century, Austen is retranslated not because of, but in spite of early translation. Because her novels have been recognised a priori as world literature by publishers, editors and translators, and indeed by readers themselves. Returning to where we started, and the Jane Austen House Museum, the global Jane Austen has made her mark on the village of Chawton. The Jane Austen House Museum Visitor's Book provides ample evidence of the place the museum holds within the tourist industry. For every visitor from the southern counties of England, there are several visitors from much further afield, from Romania to Portugal, Hungary to Denmark, Angola to the Ivory Coast. Literary tourists sign their names and document their appreciation. A visitor who signs himself from Sweden, Iran, records in August 2010 that she is very well known in both countries. A visitor from Holland the same month claims that their visit is due to an enthusiastic viewing of films. And on the 1st of October 2010, a French visitor provides a more expansive testimony. Je suis amoureuse de Marc Darcy depuis des années. I've been in love with Mark Darcy for years, this visitor writes, continuing with a direct reference to Pride and Prejudice. Ça a changé ma vie. Merci à Jane Austen et merci à vous pour cette merveilleuse visite. So Pride and Prejudice changed my life. Thank you to Jane Austen and thank you to you for this wonderful visit. Perhaps it's time to reassess our views of Jane Austen abroad with an eye to foreign readers and to consider that for many of them, both Jane Austen and her characters travel very well indeed. In doing so, we will be reminded that the process of canon formation is fascinatingly complex, that the hegemony of English plays its own part in the definition of 21st century world literature, and that in 2012, Jane Austen's novels are read for their universal truths quite as much as for their Englishness. Thank you. Happy to take some questions and